This is The New Yorker Out Loud from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we ask a New Yorker fiction writer to select a story from our archives to read and discuss. For this month's podcast, George Saunders chose You Must Know Everything by Isaac Babel. Study, she suddenly said with great vehemence. Study, and you will have everything, wealth and fame. You must know everything. The whole world will fall at your feet and grovel before you. You Must Know Everything is an early story, written in 1915, when Isaac Babel was only 21. The story, translated from the Russian by Max Hayward, was published in The New Yorker in 1966. George Saunders is the author of three short story collections. The most recent, titled In Persuasion Nation, was published by Riverhead last year. A new collection of nonfiction, The Brain Dead Megaphone, will come out in September. He has been contributing fiction to The New Yorker since 1992. George Saunders joins me from the studios of WAER in Syracuse, New York. Hi, George. Hi, Deborah. So um, the main question is, why did you choose this particular story? Well, you know, I, I love everything Isaac Babel wrote. And when I found out that he was only 21 when he wrote this, I was really intrigued. Uh, and especially to find out that everything he later perfects is here. You know, it's all present in kind of this uh, crude form. Once you referred to Babel as a combination of your two favorite writers, Hemingway and Kerouac, th- those are two writers I would never have thought to mention in the same breath as Babel, you know, this turn-of-the-century Russian Jewish writer from Odessa. What, what's the comparison there for you? Well, I'm, whenever a writer makes those kind of references, they're so private. And to me, it was kind of like Hemingway was the um, stiff upper lip kind of tough guy, and Kerouac was everything that's left over, this kind of hippie, wild sensibility. And so for me, with Babel... You can feel this extreme discipline that he was obviously a heavy editor and very tough on himself. So that's the Hemingway part. But also you could feel that a lot of his imagery was very poetic. And my feeling was that it was quite celebratory in the way that it it comes out of him. Mm -hmm. So until I discovered Babel, I think I was doing a lot of shutting myself down with that discipline. Like everything was, even adjectives were too decadent, you know. (laughs) And uh, so suddenly then to see Babel who, who could do both, you know, he was obviously not a first draft guy. He was somebody who was just wringing, wringing the life out of every story or, or into every story. But when the time came for him to sort of do a little poetic burst, he also recognized that as a legitimate thing to do. So somehow in my very, you know, self-referential system, he was a combination of those two. Uh-huh. Can you just say a little bit about what the story is about? The way I read the story is it's kind of the young Isaac Babel uh, surveying his life to date and saying, uh, you know, where has the real emotion been? because that must be where my stories are, are located. And he finds uh, his grandmother, who he loved very much. And um, so in some ways, it's kind of just a, a genius writing my Saturday with grandmother story. And when I first read it, I thought, ooh, it's kind of slow compared to what he normally does. But every time I read it, I, I find meaning in even the sections that aren't quite so, on first read, don't seem so vital. But I, anyway, as a reader, feel that there was a method to the madness, you know, that, that all this uh, scene setting actually pays off. Right. We'll, we'll talk more after we listen to the story. Here's George Saunders reading You Must Know Everything by Isaac Babel. On Saturdays, I always came home late after my six lessons at school. Walking home through the streets never seemed to me a waste of time. It was very good for daydreaming, and everything looked so nice and familiar. I knew all the signs, the stonework of the houses, the storefronts, I knew them in some special way all my own, and I was quite convinced that I saw in them what really mattered, that mysterious something that we adults call the essence of things. 
It was all very firmly fixed in my mind. If anybody happened to mention one of the stores, I could immediately picture its sign with the gilt letters and the scratch in the left-hand corner, the girl cashier with her high hairdo, and the aura clinging to the place, which is unlike the aura of any other store. And it was from such stores, people, auras, and theater posters that I pieced together my native city of Odessa. I remember, feel, and love it to this very day. I I know it as one knows the fragrance of one's mother's skin, the flavor of love, words, smiles. I love it because I grew up in it, was happy, sad, and dreamed my dreams, fervent dreams that will never return. I always walked along the main street, which was the most crowded. The Saturday I'm going to write about was at the beginning of spring. At that time of year, we didn't have that mild and soft air which in central Russia is so exquisite over some quiet river or gentle valley. We had a slight glinting chill in the air, a hint of passion with a cold edge to it. I was just a kid at the time and knew nothing about anything, but blossoming and rosy-cheeked, I was affected by the spring just the same. I always took my time on the way home from school. I scrutinized every jewel in the jeweler's shop and read the theater posters from beginning to end. Once, I was studying the pale pink corsets with crinkly garters at Madame Rosalie's and was just about to move on when I bumped into a tall student with a large black mustache. He was grinning all over his face and he said, Having a good look, eh? I blushed. He gave me a knowing pat on the back and said condescendingly, Keep it up, old fellow. Good for you. All the best. He guffawed, turned on his heel, and walked away. I was very embarrassed, went straight home, and never again stopped to gaze into Madame Rosalie's shop window. I was supposed to spend this particular Saturday at home with my grandmother. She had her own room at the far end of the apartment behind the kitchen. In the corner of her room, there was a stove. Grandmother always felt cold. It was always hot and stuffy in her room, and this made me miserable, and I wanted to escape. On this day, I took all my paraphernalia, books, music stand, and violin into Grandmother's room. The table was already laid for me. Grandmother sat in her corner while I ate. Neither of us said a word. The door was shut, and we were alone. For dinner, I had cold gefilte fish with horseradish, a dish for the sake of which it would pay one to convert to Judaism, a thick, tasty soup, roast meat and onions, lettuce, fruit salad, coffee, pie, and apples. I ate it all. I may have been a daydreamer, but I also had an appetite. Grandmother cleared the table, and the room became neat and clean. There were some sickly-looking flowers on the windowsill. The only living things that Grandmother loved were her son, her grandson, her dog Mimi, and flowers. Mimi also came in, curled up on the sofa, and immediately fell asleep. She was a terrible sleepyhead, but a wonderful dog, kind, sensible, small, and good-looking. She was a pug with a light-colored coat. She had not grown fat and flabby in her old age, but had kept herself in good trim. She lived out the whole of her life of 15 years with us, from birth to death, and naturally enough, she loved us all, particularly Grandmother, who was so hard and merciless. Some other time I'll tell the story of their silent and furtive friendship. It is a good, moving, and tender story. Anyway, there we were, all three of us, Grandmother, Mimi, and I. Mimi was sleeping. Grandmother, in a good humor, sat in the corner in her silk Sabbath dress, and I was supposed to do my lessons. It was a difficult day for me. I had already had six lessons at school, and now my music teacher, Mr. Sorokin, was supposed to come, 
and so was Mr. Lieberman, my Hebrew teacher, to give a lesson we'd missed. Payson, the French teacher, might also come, and I had to prepare a lesson for him. There would be no trouble with Lieberman. We were old friends, but music and those scales were sheer misery. I spread out my exercise books and began to do my lessons. Grandmother did not interrupt me, God forbid. Her face was drawn and blank because of her reverence for my work. She fastened her round, bright yellow eyes on me. Whenever I turned over a page, they followed the movement of my hand. Anybody else would have been made very ill at ease by this fixed and ever-vigilant gaze, but I had grown used to it. Later, she would listen to me rehearse my lessons. She was at home only in Yiddish, and her Russian was very bad. She garbled it in her own peculiar way, using a lot of Polish and Jewish words. Of course, she couldn't read or write in Russian, and she'd hold a Russian book upside down. But this didn't prevent her from going through my lessons with me from beginning to end. She couldn't understand a word, but she listened intently, and the music of the words was sweet to her ears. She was full of reverence for learning, had great faith in me, and wanted me to become a rich man. When I had finished with the lessons, I did some reading. At that time, I was reading Turgenev's First Love. I liked everything about it, the vivid words, descriptions, and conversations. But that afternoon, I was particularly thrilled by the scene in which Vladimir's father strikes Zineda on the arm with his riding crop. I could hear the swish of the whip and feel the momentary keen and painful sting of its supple thong. This upset me in some unaccountable way, and at this point I had to stop reading and walk up and down the room. But Grandmother just sat there without moving a muscle, and even the hot stifling air was quite motionless, as though it knew that I was busy and must not be disturbed. The room was getting hotter all the time. Mimi began to snore slightly. It was quiet, eerily quiet, with not a sound from the outside world. Everything seemed weird to me at that moment. I wanted to run away from it all, but also to stay there forever. The darkening room, Grandmother's yellow eyes, her tiny figure wrapped in a shawl, hunched up and silent in the corner, the heat, the closed door, the crack of the whip, its loud swish. Only now do I understand how bizarre all this was and how much it affected me. I was startled out of my troubled state by the ringing of the doorbell. It was Mr. Sorokin. I hated him at that moment. I hated his wretched scales, all this meaningless, futile, squawking music. It must be said that Sorokin was a splendid fellow. He had close-cut hair, fine large hands, and magnificent full lips. Today, under grandmother's eye, he had to teach me for a whole hour, even a little over, and really give value for money. He got no credit for his pains. The old woman's eyes followed his every movement coldly and intently and were quite indifferent and aloof to him. Grandmother had no time for strangers. She expected them to do their duty by us, and that was all. We began our lesson. I was not afraid of grandmother, but for a whole hour I had to bear the brunt of poor Sorokin's unusual devotion to duty. He felt very out of place in this remote room, in the presence of the peacefully sleeping dog and the frosty old woman sitting in the corner. At last he took his leave. Grandmother coldly gave him her large, leathery, and wrinkled hand, but she made not the slightest movement with it. As he left, he bumped into a chair. I endured the following hour as well, Mr. Lieberman's Hebrew lesson, and the moment came when the door closed behind him, too. By now it was nightfall. Far away, specks of gold lit up in the sky. The deep shaft of our courtyard was flooded with moonlight. In a neighbor's apartment, a woman's voice began to sing, Why do I love you so madly? The rest of my family had gone to the theater.
I felt depressed and tired. I had read so much and done such a lot of work. The servant girl brought in the samovar. Grandmother lit a lamp. This immediately mellowed the room. The dark, massive furniture was bathed in soft light. Mimi woke up, took a walk through the other rooms, and then came back to us to wait for supper. Grandmother was a great tea drinker. She had kept a gingerbread for me. We both drank a lot of tea. The sweat began to glisten in the deeply etched seams of her face. Do you want to go to bed, she asked. No, I replied. We began to talk, and once again I listened to grandmother's stories. Long, long ago, there was a Jew who kept an inn. He was poor, married, and weighed down by a large family, and he sold vodka without a license. A government inspector came to see him and started making trouble for him. He went to a rabbi and said, Reb, a government inspector is plaguing the life out of me. Ask God to help me. Go in peace, the rabbi said to him. The government inspector will quiet down. The Jew went home. He found the inspector on the doorstep of his inn. He was lying there dead with his belly all purple and swollen up. Grandmother fell silent. The samovar hummed away. The neighbor was still singing. Everything was covered with blinding moonlight. Mimi began to wag her tail. She was hungry. In the old days, people had faith, Grandmother said. Life was simpler. We lived next to the estate of a Polish count. The Tsar himself used to come and visit him. They used to make merry for seven days at a stretch. I would run up to the hall after dark and look in through the lighted windows. The count had a daughter, and she had the finest pearls in all the world. Then there was this rebellion. Some soldiers came and dragged the old count out onto the square. We all stood around and cried. The soldiers dug a hole in the ground. They wanted to blindfold the old man, but he said he didn't want it. He stood in front of them and gave them the order to shoot. He was a big man with gray hair. The peasants liked him. Just as they were burying him, a courier came racing up. He had a pardon from the czar. The samovar was slowly going out. Grandmother drank her last glass of tea, which had gone cold by now, and sucked a piece of sugar in her toothless mouth. Your grandfather, she said, was a great one for telling stories. He didn't believe in anything, but he trusted people. He gave away all his money to his friends, but when he came to them for help, they threw him downstairs. That made him a little queer in the head. And she went on to tell me about my grandfather. He was a big man with a sharp tongue, passionate and overbearing. He played the violin, wrote essays at night, and knew all languages. He was ruled by an insatiable thirst for knowledge and life. The general's daughter had fallen in love with their elder son, and this had been the son's undoing. He became a wanderer and a gambler, and he died in Canada at the age of 37. All grandmother had left was my father and me. Everything else was gone. For her, day was turning into night, and death was coming slowly. She fell silent again, then lowered her head and began to cry. Study, she suddenly said with great vehemence. Study, and you will have everything, wealth and fame. You must know everything. The whole world will fall at your feet and grovel before you. Everybody must envy you. Do not trust people. Do not have friends. Do not lend them money. Do not give them your heart. She said no more. There was silence in the room. She was thinking about years gone by and all her troubles. She was thinking about my future and her stern commandments pressed down heavily and forever on my weak, untried shoulders. 
In the dark corner, the iron stove glowed red hot and gave off a fierce heat. I was hot and stifled, and I wanted to run outside into the fresh air and escape, but I hadn't even the strength to raise my head. There was a crash of crockery in the kitchen. Grandmother went in there. It was supper time. The next moment I heard her harsh and angry voice. She was shouting at the servant girl. I felt awkward and upset. She had just been full of such peace and sadness. The servant was answering back. Get out, you little slut, I heard my grandmother shout with uncontrollable rage in an unbearably loud and shrill voice. I'm the one who gives orders here. You're breaking my things. Get out. I could not stand the raucous, metallic sound of her voice. I could see her through the half-open door. Her face was taut. Her lower lip was trembling with fury. Her throat was all swollen. The servant was trying to reply. Get out, grandmother said. Now everything was quiet. The servant, with hunched shoulders and on tiptoe as though she was afraid to hurt the silence, crept out of the kitchen. We had supper without exchanging a single word. We ate well and plentifully and took our time over it. Grandmother's translucent eyes were motionless, and I did not know what they were looking at. That was George Saunders reading You Must Know Everything by Isaac Babel, translated by Max Hayward. You can also find the story in The Complete Works of Babel, published by Norton and translated by Peter Constantine, which is available in paperback. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, George, when I was reading this again for this, I, I thought that if you were going to write the story, you would write the story of the mean grandmother and the kind dog. Yeah, that's always, always. Because that's how it actually <laughs> is in the real world. Grandmothers are always mean and dogs are always nice. Now, I mean, this is this. I really uh, admire and envy uh, what Bobble does here because he's able to do. It, it's such a subtle story that contradicts itself all over the place, in just the way that life does. And I and I certainly don't have anywhere near that kind of confidence. He, even as a twenty-one-year-old, he's got this amazing um, willingness to let everything into the story. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's confidence, or you think he's just kind of winging it? I mean, I think in some ways both. I, I my sense of of him as a writer always is that he left the door very wide open, and then kick some things out. Mm-hmm. It's also amazing how much this uh, resembles the later, more mature work in the sense that there's a lot of um, time spent creating a surface, like a believable surface, and then often just one little explosion uh, that then mm-hmm. ripples, and it ripples both directions. It, it ripples into the beginning and the end of the story. And here I would say there's those two little explosions. At mm-hmm. least for me, I don't know if you had this reaction, but what first strikes you is that little outburst where she's, she's talking about her husband and she says, 
he didn't believe in anything, but he trusted people, <clears throat> and they turned on mm-hmm. him. And so you you kind of think that's where the sadness is. And then uh, somehow for me, that works in a funny way with that outburst with the maid. And those are two of the, the deeply sad moments in the story. It's such a such a light touch with the characterization of the grandmother here. I mean, it's just it's interesting to me how you you think she's going to be a caricature of the the Russian Jewish grandmother, and half of the time he he seems the boy seems to hate her. The other half he seems to love her. You can never quite fix on what she is for him or anyone. Exactly, and I think that you know that's why I think maybe it started out to be a nostalgic portrait, but these uh, odd things that she says and that funny line in there where he's talking about the dog who loves the grandmother so much. And then he says um, uh, she particularly loved grandmother who was so hard and merciless. And, and that's the kind of line that, you know, you could see it coming out as you write because you're trying to be honest. And I think once a line like that gets in there, it sort of, you know, backlights everything in the story. And that, and that part of her personality is there to keep, you know. And, mm-hmm. and because, I mean, what interests me is that the advice that she gives him, uh, you must know everything, actually we can see that he's already enacted it. I mean, from the very first section, you know, when he walks down the street, he's looking at all the shop windows and everything and, um, and this incredible, you know, rigor of these lessons and everything. So in a certain way, you get the impression that that speech about the grandfather, this isn't the first time he's heard that speech. You must yeah. know everything. And then what's beautiful to me about the story is the way that a lesser writer would probably have let that be the big surprise, the fact that I'm shocked my grandmother said this about you must know everything. But in fact, it's all, it's all sort of calm backstory. And the shock is when the grandmother then turns on that maid and calls yeah. her a slut. Or in other translations, uh, an hi- she calls her a hireling or a dreck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so in any case, not, not good. Uh, but that yeah. to me is the interesting moment in that story where um, this grandmother, who he's already conceded isn't a saintly grandmother, even surpasses his expectations by, by turning on this woman. And, and at least for me, you, you think, wow, well, maybe that this advice that she gives him, study, you must know everything, it's incredibly aggressive. I mean, she says, uh, the whole world will grovel before you. Everybody must envy you. Mm-hmm. And then when you think, oh, this, this family ethic, which he's already imbibed, probably is why uh, the friends rejected the grandfather. She mentioned sort of in passing that he mm-hmm. was arrogant and so on. So you could see a situation where their version is he gave everything and they screwed him. But the friends might say, oh, that guy was so arrogant, you know. All, all he wanted was us to grovel before him and envy him. <laughs> so, so there's a kind of beautiful yeah. circularity in it. So, a lot of people read that advice as sort of Babel's recipe for becoming a writer. It seems awfully calculating if that's what well, it I did, is. I, don't trust people. Don't have friends. Don't lend them money. Don't give them your heart. Well, um, and actually, all those you just named, he contradicted every single one of those. Uh, he was apparently always giving money away, both in Paris and in, in Russia, and had a lot of good friends. But I did hear once that he um, he would say, you must know everything. And he used to, when he met a woman, he, he would pay her for the privilege of looking into her purse with the idea, <laughs> with the, with the idea that you could sort of tell a lot uh, about a person by what they had in their purse. It, it also seems like a bit of a pickup line. But, uh, but, he, but he also, I mean, some writers say that he, uh, one of the reasons he ended up being killed uh, by Stalin was that he had gotten really close to the police chief and... Partly, Bob was just fascinated by that stuff. And I think also he really did feel like the more you knew, the more, you know, the more you could get into your stories. George Saunders, thanks so much. Thank you. That was fun. George Saunders' most recent collection of stories is titled In Persuasion Nation. You can also read a new Saunders short story, Puppy, on our website, newyorker.com. 
To subscribe to this and other free New Yorker podcasts, please visit the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. You've been listening to The New Yorker Out Loud from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.